that time again. Welcome back to Right Now. I'm Stephen Kent. Over the weekend, the nation's dads and their kids celebrated or actively avoided Father's Day. I woke up to my kitchen being turned into a Disney Star Wars restaurant, complete with excellent waiting service from my rising fifth grader. Best Eggo waffles I've ever had. I felt appreciated. I also felt momentarily small. Because in my own father, I've gotten a glimpse of the man that I want to be, and I am still not there yet. He is patient, disciplined, balances joy and deadly seriousness with incredible ease. He's good with money, worldly, but also still reverent. He wasn't always that way. I got to be party to his own growth as a father and a godly man, and it's really made a difference in shaping who I am and still wish to be. But look, 20 million American kids this past week did not have anyone to reflect on or appreciate. One quarter of our young people don't know their dads or have relationships with them. It's bred all sorts of social ills from drug abuse to criminality, which leads to generational cycles of poverty, illiteracy, crime. And then that cycle goes round and round and round, destroying families and communities altogether. Broken cycles of fatherhood have root causes. Among them is a spiritual and cultural crisis amongst boys and men, which is that they are made to be ashamed of their nature. They're pushed to reject their higher calling to lead and take responsibility, and they're branded as toxic for even a passing embrace of the masculine ideal. Now, what is that ideal? That's on the agenda today. Before we go there, it would be great if you had subscribed to the show on YouTube. We just passed 2,000 subs, so get with it and come along. You can also follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at RightlyAJ. Tell a friend and don't be shy to leave a comment on YouTube. I do try to respond to all of them, even the mean ones that allege my occasional upspeak is feminine and needs to be rooted from my speech. <laughs> Maybe one day. My guests today are two people I really admire and who have a unique perspective on manhood and why it matters. He's the host of the Young Heretics podcast and editor at the American Mind and chairman of the White Boy Summer Committee on Foreign Relations. Spencer Clavin <laughs> is joining us from Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, you got a you got a very good position on the committee, Spencer. So uh, you should you should be proud. Uh, we've also got I really here in had the to house. Pull a few strings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, 100%. We've also got here in the house Emma Ayers. She's a political writer and a frequent voice in the American Conservative, USA Today, and the Washington Examiner. Emma, welcome. You promised you were going to wear your veil. Yeah, well, I left it at home. I'm really sorry to everybody, including your viewers and you and Spencer. Yeah, yeah sorry that I'm a woman that's like <laughs> showing my hair. Our, our entire audience can see you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Personally, I, I'm surprised I'm still on this show, actually. <laughs> no, here you are. We're all here nice together. Week. Guys, I, I wanted to start with a little bit of Father's Day reflection because we got a lot to talk about important, weighty, existential issues that matter a lot to the survival of the Republic and mankind. Uh, but I just wanted to ask you first, just Father's Day, it's been on my mind all week. Tell me a little bit about your dads, uh, whichever one of you wants to go first, maybe Emma, since she's here, would love to know a little bit more about where you come from and, and where you get some of the beliefs you hold. Sure. Um, yeah. So my dad is uh, really cool. Um, it's 
It's funny because I, whenever I describe him, I always, I always list off all the things that I think are really great about men, <laughs> which is big, burly, <laughs> hairy. No, I'm he is big and burly though. Um, yeah, no, he's. Uh, I, I think he is similar in essence to kind of the old world, like classic Western. Um, John Wayne. Honestly, he kind of looks like him. I think. Um, he, yeah, he's incredibly good with his with his hands. He can like make anything he wants. He built my mom this like gorgeous farmhouse table the other like like the other day. Um, he's just he's just incredibly capable. I would say he's he's got a really good goofy sense of humor while also scaring any other um, any other man that's around him. So he's able to like walk, really walk that line uh, very well, just by virtue of the fact that he is. I don't know. He's just so strong and determined. Um, yeah, he's he's from South Dakota, so he, he that will do it. He yeah, that really <laughs> will, which is exactly what happened. Um, I'll do it. Yeah. Um, Spencer, I'm I'm familiar with your dad. Um, the uh, yeah. not the late great Andrew <laughs> Andrew Clavin. He's still with us, um, but he's a <laughs> you know something I don't. No, I, I'm sorry to report, uh, oh your father. God. Yes, we're not going to go. Bail now. This um, your your dad's an interesting guy. Could you tell us a little bit about your relationship? Yeah, well, it is funny. I mean, at, when you asked that question, I was like, how do I, it's always kind of weird to me talking about my dad in public because in, since I've been an adult, he's become sort of a, I don't know, a conservative celebrity, whatever you want to call it. People watch his show, which was not always true growing up. He was sort of a reclusive novelist when I was a kid. And this like new generation of people that know about him and look, he's, I mean, he, like, I, I think he sort of is America's dad, uh, on his, on his show a little bit. And it's always difficult to convey to people that he really, I mean, that he does walk the walk in his personal life. This is something, maybe we'll get into this actually, you know, the, the distinction between what you project out there, what you construct, what you put into your podcast or whatever, and, and how you actually live. Um, my dad has what I think is one of the most important manly characteristics, and that's integrity on that score, the, the kind of union between mm-hmm. the our projection and the, you know, what you're, who you are when nobody's looking or when you're just with your family. Um, I did think when you were talking about the, that sort of walking the line between serious and, and funny. Yeah. My, my dad's almost constitutionally incapable of taking basically anything seriously. And, and I, I, they used to drive me insane growing up. I would, I would say to him, like, I'm trying to tell you something serious. And he would make some joke, you know? Um, but eventually I learned, and this is something I hope that he's passed on to me, that the, the reason for that was that he took certain things extremely seriously. That is, he took his responsibility as breadwinner extremely seriously. Uh, once he became a Christian, he took his relationship to God with the utmost seriousness. And even before then, um, he took his integrity, his intellectual integrity very seriously. And so uh, he sort of passed on to me the idea, I think, that if you do uh, feel secure in those things and if you're you're, uh, devoting yourself to that level of seriousness and and uncompromising discipline in in those areas, um, you don't really have to take, uh, you know, the, the powerful men of the world very seriously. You don't have to take the world itself, which is so broken and, and comically fallen very seriously. Um, and so when, you know, when people whatever laugh at my dad's monologues, I always think, yeah, that's kind of that that's him because in real life he's, uh, you know, he's, he walks the walk. Yeah. Everybody now gets to hear what you've been hearing for so long. <laughs> oh. uh, I, imag- I imagine there's a, 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 like a little whiff of refreshment about that. You like mm-hmm. to see other people sort of engaging with the guy who your dad is, uh, has long been. Um, is there yeah. been no, like, I, things about I, your parents that you 
have had to grow to appreciate with your own own journeys and, and maturity because I imagine we all like there are areas where we resent our, our, our fathers in particular mm-hmm. when we're younger and then we don't see until we're significantly older they're like oh that is the thing about them that is strength and it just drove me crazy oh for sure yeah no I was I was thinking about this the other day because you know as I've gotten older as one does I think I've just gotten more and more conservative and my idealism about what traditionalism looks like in parenting has just so shifted in the sense that like when you know my dad would you know want to make sure that I was home by a certain time or wasn't dating a particular kind of person I was like man he's just so controlling and as I've gotten older I'm like man he should have done that even more like it's it's there's an element where you know his I think just traditional masculinity and which is incidentally what we're going to be talking about um is you know has become something that i just so appreciate and so look for in other men and i think one of the operating definitions and there are many definitions of like what the masculine ideal is what masculinity is but like one thing that you just described there is not being a doormat (laughs) you know like having an (laughs) having an opinion and something to say and you know like you can't just bring anybody home there's a standard (laughs) yes absolutely. and being able to tolerate being disliked too i think for that moment right i mean the the, i've I've thought a lot about that patience that it takes to to actually whatever get yelled at by your teenage daughter or like have your son throw a tantrum because you're being the mean guy and they say i mean kids i think know how to say terrible things to their parents that probably wound them more than we know and so in order to be able to put your foot down in the face of that i think you you have to have a certain degree of inner of inner strength and confidence that you're on the right track emma could you take us down the road of the premise for the conversation today which is masculinity is in crisis you hear about it everywhere we we, we hear often and, and it's very popular in the podcasting and youtubing world that like boys are are sort of rudderless uh young men don't know how to be men uh, and the only thing that they are being told is that the masculine ideal is toxic is destructive and that the only thing worth preserving is the feminine one could you sort of sell the audience if they are not on board that this is a problem that it is Sure. Well, I'm coming at it from a conservative point of view. And also, to be clear to everybody that is watching, um, I'm a Catholic. So, a convert, um, though, right? I am a convert. Yeah. I am a convert. As Recently. It's a big year. Yeah. So we definitely could say recent. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I think for anybody that is being intellectually honest, you can look at, you know, the the way that society is is going i was going to say progressing i wouldn't i wouldn't go that far um but the way society is going and certainly there is an element where the masculine is being stripped and the feminine is being crystallized in the sense that what is good and what is bad um you know the fact that the phrase toxic masculinity has been thrown around so much that we can actually joke about it now is crazy to me i mean it's a it is it's just a part of our lexicon um and it can mean literally anything um, you know, anything that boys are naturally prone to, um, can be described as toxic. Um, and, you know, if, if we're talking about what is natural, um, you know, you can't just say this thing that you are naturally prone to is toxic and expect boys to grow up in a good, healthy, you know, 
Yeah, even the society. the American Psychological Association has like weighed in on this yeah. and given definitions and their own guidelines about what masculinity is. And in their in some of their documents, they describe traditional masculinity, and they pretty much just ascribe it to what is often referred to online as toxic masculinity. Um, which, you know, can be like anti-femininity, an interest in adventure, risk, and sometimes a, a, a predeposition to violence. Um, you know, these are things that are just kind of different between boys and girls a lot of the time. Um, Spencer, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but, uh, yeah, I mean, like even, oh, even no. the highest levels of our elites and associations and medical industries are getting involved in this discussion in a way that's incredibly weird. <laughs> really bizarre. Yeah, I think it's, it's really intriguing that the word the APA uses to sort of almost interchangeably with toxic masculinity is traditional masculinity. Mm -hmm. And it, it seems to me like that's distantly informed by this sort of uh, gender theory, Judith Butler idea that that gender itself, right, is is a social construct or performance. And if that's the case, you know, if you have this sort of uh, Rousseauian idea that all uh, society is just an imposition on the natural man, then like all of the terrible excesses that that masculinity is, is prone to in this view, right, come from this set of traditions. And to me, what's terrible about that is that there isn't a traditional element of masculinity. That is, there is an element of of manly virtue that's passed down from generation to generation. I mean, this isn't unique to men. I think this is true of women. Can you too. ascribe some and, of what and, those virtues are in your mind? We talked about integrity. Um, what are some of the other yeah. pillars of that so that we sort of have a, an operating shared idea of what that is? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think I think courage has has almost always been, and we were talking about this when we were talking about our dads, right? And courage in the sense of you know the sort of traditional charging into battle kind of courage, but also just just courage in a sense of rootedness, right? I mean, the the Greek word for courage is Andrea, literally literally manliness. And I think that there is the, a certain sense without that without courage, you can't sort of express any of those other manly virtues in a meaningful way. You can't hold your ground with your traditional values. You can't, uh, you know, take the, you can't lead your family, for example, into a slightly risky area that, you know, that risk taking. So I would, I would say courage and integrity are two good ones. I don't know. I'd like to hear what, what Emma, uh, would name as well. Yeah, I think, you know, courage, integrity, that definitely, that's true. And I, you know, I put in my, my latest piece for, for attack. I think it's, I think there's an element where, um, yeah, it's, it's, there isn't, you know, you want to hold on to tradition, um, and understanding, understanding the past, understanding what is, is duty. Cause I think that those two things are, you know, they, they can't be mutually exclusive. You have to understand the past in order to understand your duty. And that to me is something that's really important for masculinity. Um, understanding what you're supposed to do and then doing it as opposed to this sort of like ambiguous nature that I think is being thrust upon men right now where it's, you know, uh, they're trying to cater to all the changing whims of society as opposed to understanding who they are, what they do, and then doing it. Um, to me, I think that that is what we kind of see this discrepancy between older men and, and younger men very clearly. Um, and I think that that's what's being deemed as, as toxic is just this, you know, older people understanding this is how we're supposed to do things and the younger people trying to like, you know, figure out all the different waves of, you know, so, you know, society that's. Yeah. I think one of the, yeah, go ahead, Spencer. Well, it's interesting again that, you know, I think, I think you're absolutely right about duty and it's interesting then that another 
word that you hear tossed around a lot by the toxic masculinity, masculinity crowd is expectations, right? Society's expectations uh, are thought to be the you know the place where ev- <laughs> everything goes terribly wrong, right? This is like this, this horrible imposition. And and I think a word that I use a lot when I'm talking to young men about these issues. I mean, I, I get a lot of messages from young men who are, you know, really confused about all of this stuff, to be yeah. frank, because of this, this messaging, right? And uh, one of the words that I use a lot is aspiration, right? You, you don't have to be born with a certain characteristic in order to be born naturally aspiring toward it. And when, when the natural aspirations of a boy meet the expectations or the duties of a healthy society, then I think you get this kind of growth that is, is part of what's being uh, interfered with here. I don't know if this is on the same track, but aspiration uh, seems to me to be linked to desire, to want, to drive for certain things. And Emma, you've been bemoaning for many years the, sta- <laughs> the state of the dating scene in the post in the post Me Too world. It's just like men are not not the license is not the right word, but encouraged to express desire for people. And have to wait for everything to come their way, whether it is, you know, casual flirtation at bars, whether it is eye contact, whether it's speaking to somebody in an elevator who you would actually like to maybe go out and get a drink with. Like this sort of idea that you can't have goals, aspiration, want, that you just have to wait for everything to just come your way. Um, that has consequences. Like, I'm not saying that it's just like an awful, awful thing, but it has consequences that we don't talk about. I'll, I'll go ahead and say it's an awful, awful thing. <laughs> I'll put that out there. Um, no, I think, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's an element where it's, it just, it, you know, what they want for men is, and is completely different from what they want for women. And I say they, just, we all know what I'm talking about. Society <laughs> seems to, want women to be able to take that um take that sort of gumption that we normally expected with with men and we it's totally been swapped courage Courage. a little bit a little bit of that courage exactly women are encouraged to be a girl boss and like get what you want go girl you know like you want you want a career go get it you want a guy ask him out and it's totally opposite for men and that is something that is like that that sort of idealism has just accelerated so quickly in the past like i don't know 10 years um to the point where, you know, I think a lot of women and men are just not sure of their footing for reasons like, like, you know, I, like you said, I, I do bemoan the dating scene. Not that I don't date, I date yeah. money, but you know, I understand that as a woman who grew up thinking, Oh, this is how men are supposed to act. Men are supposed to pursue women. Men are supposed to have these sort of traditional understandings of what a date looks like. And then for that to be switched so quickly, I think everybody is unsure of what's going on. And it's, yeah, that's, I would say, I, mean, and that's, I think awful. that's what's confusing here is because the feminine is not upheld right. for women. The feminine is only upheld for men. The masculine is upheld for women. Uh, and then, so you either have sort of this just like gender swap thing going on, or the gender neutrality um, ideology, which is which is its own thing. Exactly. Yep. I, yeah. I'm curious what. Yeah, Spencer I wonder thinks. actually. Well, right. I, I was. I, I was. I, I wonder about this a lot. Right. That it seems to me that behind a lot of the toxic masculinity rhetoric is actually there. There is, you know discomfort with or horror at the assertive male impulse in that. And I think, you know, some of these excesses that came out of the Me Too movements are, are, are good examples of this, right? That now suddenly, like, men don't even know 
what to do about their sexuality, don't know what to do about taking initiative with with women in the dating world, as, as you're describing. Um, but it, it seems almost like there's a deeper aversion underlying this, which is a horror at femininity, a horror at homemaking, a horror at, uh, you know, virtues of uh, virtues like um, uh, modesty being demure. I mean, these, these sorts of things, which uh, were kind of thought to be associated very closely with women's power in most traditional societies, the power that women have over men to uh, invite them into that aspiration, to encourage uh, masculinity in them, as, as in fact, Emma, you are well known for doing, right? I mean, that, those sorts of things uh, are, are, seem to me to be what are, are truly devalued. It's truly devalued to be a feminine woman. And, uh, and, and then, therefore, women must be more like men, and then men must wither and shrink to make room for women to do that, because if they didn't, then naturally that, you know, women wouldn't be competing with men in the, in the masculine sphere in the same way that they are. I, I'm not sure. Um, it's, I guess all I'm saying is it seems to me that these two things are, are very intimately related. And I'm, mm-hmm. I, and I'm not sure that the horror of the feminine isn't the first part of it, the kind of bedrock of it. Yeah, I, I Spencer, you're totally, I think you're totally correct. Um, what I would say, though, is that there is a sort of bizarre celebration of, I mean, yeah. we, we see this now with you know, like, who is it? Harry Styles running around wearing a dress. Harry Styles mm. versus Candace, Candace Owens 2021. Yeah. Super bizarre. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, you look at, you look at these things. It's, it's, I, I want to say, I, I agree that it's horror, but it's almost just an intentional dis, dis, distortion, distortion. That's the word. Wow. Couldn't think of that. Distortion of femininity. Because you look at these people on the red carpet who are wearing dresses, clearly trying to make some sort of huge statement. They look bad. They truly, they look bad. I don't even think anybody would look at that and say, wow, they look really good. It's almost like, you know, the only people who are saying that are people who are writing articles about it. But we all know these men that are putting on dresses look bizarre. And it's this weird confrontation between, you know, this idealism and the public that I think we are seeing very clearly. We are naturally not inclined toward this, but they're forcing this upon us. And yeah, you're talking about, you know, horror of femininity. It is horrible to look at. I mean, it, 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 it's horrifying to me. Maybe. I don't know. I think it probably is horrifying to a lot of people. <laughs> well, this is, I, mean, I mean, like Billie Eilish, like she finally has stepped out into like showing skin herself as someone yeah. who has finally like come of age. She's no longer wearing like the baggy t-shirts and baggy pants down to her feet and actually like expressing womanhood. And her fans have have lashed against it like they've been like you've been promoting this other idea this modesty idea this weird gen z Mm -hmm. like transgressive modesty idea for all this time and she's like leaned back in the other direction i don't know if it's just to promote a new album or what but like there are these weird swings particularly in pop culture where people are going in both directions yeah yeah no and i I think i think to that extent it's it's just trying to abolish the natural um trying to abolish the good Um, because you know people who look at that, which is most people, look at Harry Styles and say, wow, he looks really bad, are deemed to be, you know, incredibly problematic, right? Um, when I think we can all just agree, like, he looks bad and that he shouldn't be wearing a dress, right? Like, it's weird. <laughs> well, the, the, uh, no, I mean, the ugliness of it is is an important argument in favor yeah. of of nature, right? I mean, the, mm-hmm. and and I, I I often encounter this also with because you know a whole sort of next step of all of this is the gender neutral or the non-binary or the gender fluid, whatever you know th- th- that you would deconstruct these barriers entirely, and and part of the 
sort of the best evidence for me that, that, that that's not actually a real thing is that the only way to actually pursue that idea that you're going to break out of gender molds is to sort of sand down everything into this big featureless blob, right? And you get these articles like, why, I, I'm, a, I'm a non-binary icon, why won't anybody sleep with me, right? Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like, well, well, because you look awful, you know? And, and, <laughs> and, and there is like, uh, <laughs> and there is a good argument there for, um, you know, that, that when, you're, when you're sort of grinding against the natural elements of your selfhood, you're, you're gonna end up sort of unsexy. I don't know, I mean, that, that, and, it's, and it's, it's so... Um, as, as you say, Emma, it, it, it's almost taboo to be talking about. And yet it's a crucial thing to be observing in the world. Right? It's the crime of noticing things that you would say, actually, this this seems really unappealing. Not one, one thing I just I want to posit here, because this discussion is oldest time, centuries old, probably <laughs> thousands of years mm-hmm. old, um, you know, that manhood is up for grabs, that it's in decline, like this is not new. Mm-hmm. And Spencer, I listened to your podcast, Young Heretics, and you've talked about like cross-dressing and sort of like the ancient world and like how that plays into theater and like where sort of playing with gender roles, particularly in an artistic sense and the thespian sense, like... I don't know if I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like there is something to be done with that. But it kind of matters what the boundaries of where that kind of stuff happens are. Because when I see Harry Styles like put on a dress to like, I don't know, get clapped or be on the front of a magazine, it doesn't bother me or say anything to me about who this person is or values. I guess I just grew up on like listening to too much David Bowie. Like it just, that's just how I view art and thespians as mm-hmm. being. So it doesn't affect me. Yeah. Um, am I, am I twisting your view of that a little bit? Because I feel like this is just nothing new. No, no, you're you're not twisting my view. I mean, I think one one point that I try to hammer home a lot on the show is that this idea that I mean, toxic masculinity itself, but more generally, this idea that gender roles are pernicious and evil and oppressive is almost always based on the most extravagant sexist caricature of what it means to be a man and a woman, right? Like toxic masculinity is itself not a description of a virtuous man. It's a description of a boor, right? It's a description of somebody whose, you know, sort of boyish impulses have never been tamed by the great civilization, civilizational uh, diktats of things like chivalry, right? Um, And so we we set up these these caricatures of, of manhood and womanhood and what's expected of men and women in traditional societies. And then we say, well, isn't that terrible? So we must abolish it all. But one of the things that comes out, if you actually look at, for example, uh, you know, ancient Athenian society in the fifth century BC, which is where I think I took some of those cross-dressing examples. I was, I, I was particularly <laughs> talking about Euripides, right? And, yes. and, and, and Bacchae. Um, but, you know, there's an enormous awareness that these binary realities of our humanity are not like completely impermeable and that men have something to learn from women women have something to learn from men i mean this is the great tradition of all of this stuff um and you know when i when i when i read emma's piece about uh about twitter and and manliness the the first thing that came to my mind was the was plutarch's sayings of the spartan women you know plutarch the essayist records all of these things that spartan women used to say to their to their kids um very gruff and 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 assertive 
pejorative, you know, not at all what you would think of as kind of the this caricature, this, I think, feminist caricature of the traditional homemaker. Um, things like, you know, Spartan women can can assert themselves to men because they're the only women who give birth to real men and thing or, you know, mm-hmm. come back, uh, go into battle and come back carried on your shield or, or holding it. That is, don't surrender, die rather than surrender. Um, and, you know, Clytemnestra, not a you know, great uh, role model, but is called man-minded in, in Aeschylus. Th- these, these sort of – the notion that these transgressions exist was never thought to be an argument against the existence or the value of the categories. And to me, it's it's kind of a, just a stupid argument to say like, oh, look, there are this, there's this fuzziness around the edges. There are certain edge cases. And therefore, what, like all of this needs to be torn down. That just seems like – a, a failure in logic and also deeply a historical. I want to I want to ask about the resistance to what we're talking about here, sort of the gender neutrality thing, and all of the different movements that have popped up, particularly online, in the academy, social media kind of stuff against it. Um, the, I think top of mind is Jordan Peterson, like Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for life is often held up um, as sort of like the prime example of like, boys are rudderless, they're looking for somebody to flock to and hear about how to be men. Like one thing that Jordan Peterson, I believe this is, is, is he who says this, uh, and I think it relates to what you were laying out, Spencer, is like he said, a good man is a dangerous man who has it under control, uh, which is actually a line I really like. Um, but he represents this secular sort of clapback against um, gender neutrality, whereas there is also a deeply spiritual one. And I think Emma is probably somebody who sees tension between those two things and which one is going to actually lead to good outcomes. Yeah, no, absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. I, yeah, the, I'm very torn on Jordan Peterson, mainly because I see that he has done good. He's like, He's done a lot of good. I've, there are so many men that seem to be trying to get it together, and they'll cite Jordan Peterson as the reason why. That's great. I'm really happy for them in that sense. My worry, like you said, is that so, you know, and I, I wrote this in my piece, and I think this is one of the fundamental issues with our society right now, but so much of kind of how we live our lives is live action role playing. And Religion to me as, as a Catholic is something that gives life its utter essence. Um, so when that is stripped from, you know, masculinity or just like, you know, even just living day to day, there's an element where the, the meaning of it, in my view, is, is stripped as well. Um, and it, and it also, I think, kind of hampers its longevity. Um, because, you have to really believe in something in order to, I guess, perpetuate it. Um, so when we're talking about masculinity, there is an element where fear of God is, is crucial, in my opinion. Um, you know, and I, I agree that like getting up and making your bed every day and like, you know, asking women out is really <laughs> important. But I mean, how sustainable, how meaningful is it until you're doing it for a reason that is greater than yourself. Yeah, God gives you duty and direction exactly. and a sense of service to others. Right. The secular tradition of this sort of, you know, get your stuff together, clean your room, right. stand up straight. That gives you, I don't know, like it just gives you rules on how to get through the day. Like that's that's very different than how to set the trajectory of your life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I have both a thought about that, but also a question, Emma, for you, because I am divided about Peterson and the, like the exact same way. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my thought about the God thing, in addition to what you guys are saying, is 
all of this stuff about, you know, men need to show their weaker side, they need to be vulnerable, they need to cry in public, they need to do all of these things, right? I have often wondered whether that's not a replacement for how men used to regard their relationship with God. I mean, scriptural kings and male prophets and male leaders, it seems to me, uh, are shown in, in profoundly weak, intimate, vulnerable relationships with God because he is so much higher, stronger, and more powerful. And in, in, light of, in light of him, they understand their brokenness, their humanity, their smallness, and all of these things. And it's in the context of that that they, they are, you know, they're able to then shelve that and go out into society and do what they need to do and project strength and confidence. It seems to me as if losing that kind of go into the the closet the room and and like prostrate yourself before god and show him your weakness um is leading to this psychological need right to put your weakness like out there in the world before everybody because you need somebody to witness to it somebody Mm -hmm. to to see it um my question about about peterson is this i I think i think it's c.s lewis says that for that the poetry of wordsworth was for him uh, a guidance for the man coming up from below. That is, he had no spirituality at all. Um, and then Wordsworth, he read Wordsworth, who has this kind of naturalist, almost pantheist, although not quite spirituality in some of his earlier work, right? And that was a step for him on the road back to his faith. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, in your experience, in your view, are people treating peterson that way that is are are they are they taking the the peterson gospel on board and then like advancing past it to the actual gospel or are they just kind of staying in this secular like roadhouse where they never have to leave yeah that's that's so that's such a great question i so it's funny because you know from what i can tell and um i i listen to jonathan peugeot i don't know if you all have heard of this person but he's really he's amazing he's a youtube commentator who is also an uh, orthodox icon carver <laughs> um so of course i watch him um but he <laughs> yeah he's he's friends with peterson and he is talking, he talks sometimes about their relationship, not a lot. He doesn't want to, you know, divulge everything, but he is candid about the fact that Peterson is on the road to Christianity himself. Um, and Peterson has said that a few times. Um, so, you know, I guess, I guess what I'm saying, Spencer, is that I would be curious to see Peterson, if, if Peterson is making his way there, would that happen with the people who are adherents of his ideology? I'm going to argue probably that it it's not going to normally be the case. And the reason for that is kind of the reason that I wrote the piece. I think that... Well, let's actually qualify the piece real quick because I've, I've been meaning to introduce it oh, to people. Yeah, so like one of the things that I want to talk about now is how to push back on all of these forces the right way. Sure. And you wrote an article, which I really enjoyed. Um, people send me ideas for episodes all the time. And this episode is a result of you sending me uh, Why Twitter is Not Manly uh, by Emma Ayers uh, in The American Conservative. And this piece, I think, really nicely lays out the problem that we've discussed here. And then there is this, you know, highly online class, Gen Z, millennial uh, people who believe in restoring the ancient and, and conservative virtues of manliness and masculinity, uh, but all they do is tweet about it. Mm. And so yeah. now that we've sort of introduced it, there it is. take it away. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's great. I, we, I, I, that was where I was going. So this is a great segue. Um, the, you know, what I was about to say about Peterson is that it, it kind of, I think, 
allows for a society that is already very satisfied with living a half-life to continue doing so and still satiating those needs to be, you know, structured, routine, whatever, like having masculinity without any of the sort of deeper, richer meaning. And so, yes, I wrote the piece because something that I am really concerned about as a conservative is that I think that conservatives are, you know, our, our ideology is what our society needs, but I'm worried that we are not utilizing praxis. You're um, right. It is also fundamentally unmanly, referencing Twitter. If masculinity is earned by real courage, unyielding principle in the face of unprincipled adversity, and conscious care for what matters, then the idea that you prove your manhood with Twitter dunks, consistent likes, and a follower count north of 3,000 is as ridiculous of a notion that you should train for the Wimbledon Cup by playing Wii Tennis. Um, yeah, I mean, this like this speaks to the LARPing thing. Yeah. I mean, some of the, the best and, and most well-known advocates for the masculine ideal, um, you know, they don't do the things that you want them to be doing, which is starting families. Sure. <laughs> and like therein lies the tension. Um, I mean, I've, I, with our guest last week, Saurabh Sharma was talking about, you know, these Gen Zers who are all trying to take us back to some sort of old idea of the good, but none of them have wives. And like, I, I do hold that as important mm -hmm. to, to note that like, why are you not dating? Why are you not having children and working and working and working? Like these things matter. Yep. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think there's an element where, to me, our time on this earth is just so limited. And I think we're inclined toward just kind of wasting it, wasting it, thinking that we're living a particular kind of life because we're saying things as opposed to like actually doing them. Right. Um, you know, this is why Hannah Arendt is, was so, such a game changer because she was so intent on saying, look, we can talk about these kind of things all day but until we actually do something about it it's not real and and but what we've done as a society is just allowed ourselves to just talk and have ideas that we put on the internet and utilizing none of them and that is i think poisonous if we want to actually affect change and i know as a conservative who interacts with a lot of conservatives that's the point and that's what we want to do i don't, I don't know if spencer has thoughts on that yeah i am uh i'm, I'm chewing on this because i think the critique that you make of the very online right in that piece is absolutely touches a nerve, right? You, you, are, you are absolutely identifying a, a reality, which is people who use, I think Joshua Mitchell would call this, they, they, you know, they use their online persona as a substitute for their real persona and their real life as opposed to a supplement, right? As opposed to some, you know, element of it that they can incorporate and, and use. Um, I also think that there is a, a, a reason for that, which has to do, and this speaks to both the Twitter thing and the Peterson thing. Um, and it has to do with what we were talking about earlier about tradition, right? It, we had in this country, in the West more generally, a number of institutions, the family being foremost among them, um, but like, you know, Boy Scouts being another one and sports teams and all of these things it, it, within which it, these ideas of, of masculinity and uh, manly virtue and aspirational manhood, all of these things were passed down from, from men to boys. Um, one of the things that has now been just systematically, uh, to use a buzzword, right, systematically dismantled is that idea that you would have these institutions that people, and, and one of the things that I see, like, as they say, 
in the DMs, not to be very online, but right, like among <laughs> the, the people that are reaching out to me <laughs> privately, right? Uh, is that is that this is like the place or Jordan Peterson is like the one place that they even know to go to get that instruction. And that's like, it seems to me that's worse. It seems to me it's worse than to, to get your instruction of that kind from a YouTube video and from a DM group than it is to get it from your father, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's also better than nothing. And I, I think that puts us in this tricky and difficult position because it's very, very easy to get to that place. And as we've been saying, never go any further, right? Um, there are also ways, though, to, to push back against it, right? Like, there's a difference, of course, between a media personality and a like a person listening to a media person. The difference between Jordan Peterson and Jordan Peterson's audience. And and, and I, I wonder whether uh, people who, who do make a living talking about this stuff, and there are always going to be those people, um, could do a better job of actually enforcing or at least uh, inviting accountability about this stuff. So if you're going to be like, uh, 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 you know, it's a weird version of this that's like kind of goofy to talk about, but just right wing bodybuilder Twitter, right, where where everybody's <laughs> always lifting weights, talking about getting back in shape, right? I, isn't um, that, isn't the, that the what thing... you're part of, Spencer? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if I count exactly because I'm like, you know, not quite trad enough and i'm not anonymous but like <laughs> yeah <laughs> but but I, i'm i'm only invoking it to to make a point which is like there's a uh, there's a trope on right-wing bodybuilding yeah. on twitter which is uh, like you know in in the replies which is post physique right and post physique means like you know you're talking about all the workouts that you're doing like show us a you know even just a video of doing those workouts right mm-hmm. um and and so at a deeper level, right, there there should be a version of post physique for like post post family, right? Post like dating experience. Um that uh, it seems to me, and and Emma, you allude to this, that we're we're probably not going to just seed the online space entirely as conservatives. Mm-hmm. Um, but that we could do a better job talking about accountability in our online personas. I don't know if you agree with this or if I'm already if I'm still too online. Well, I think like this uh, like the post physique thing was like men talking about lifting weights and then and also like this other version of sort of masculinity, which is go out and date, right? Like think about like the, know, the Will Smith movie Hitch, right? Like these kind of like how to go and approach girls and actually get people to go on mm, dates yeah. with you. Like those are two elements of the of the puzzle, mm-hmm. but left alone, they equal nothing. And in fact, they just are a total dead end road for your soul and for society. It has to be channeled into I am going to be strong physically for a reason to protect people and to mm-hmm. offer guidance and direction. And I'm going to learn how to approach women so I can have children right. <laughs> and yeah. that kind of thing. And like, and then I'm going to parent them and I'm going to make the world a better place. Sure. But we don't have that part. There is right. there is no funnel where it is actually then turning into action. Uh, by and large, I think family formation is is sort of in the uh, in a rut. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I you know, there's an element work to all of this that I think comes back to perhaps too much focus on the self as opposed to extraneous focus. Um, so I, I listened to, um, a really interesting podcast, um, a Catholic podcast where a psychologist was kind of talking about the loss of identity, um, in society and how identity used to be a thing that one had within oneself. And then once your identity became a thing that you put online, it, it's almost like you empty yourself. It was something that you could see. You had to verify your own self through looking at yourself online as opposed to knowing who you are. Your brand. Deeply. Your brand. <laughs> your personal brand. <laughs> it makes me want to cry that we use that. 
<laughs> but yeah, your brand, your brand. I'm going to be sad today. Um, yeah, truly your brand. It's, it, you know, it's something that in order to verify that you are a person, you have to have an online presence that you have crafted for yourself as opposed to knowing yourself deeply inside. And I would argue that, you know, masculinity, as we, as we, as we talked about is kind of, you know, knowing who you are. Um, and so once that's kind of stripped from you and just put online and we can talk about like physique Twitter, right? Like, why are you working out? Are you working out so you can take a picture of yourself and put it on Twitter? Are you working out so that you can, you know, like Steve was saying, like have a family and be there for them and be able to pick up your kids, right? The, the motivation I think actually really matters because that's what you're thinking about when you're doing the thing. And when your mind is elsewhere while you're doing it, you're not going to be fully present. And that I think strips the essence and meaning out of life. You know, and and the, uh, now I'm just going off on social media as opposed to as opposed no, to no, but you I mean, already did that. Totally the American valid. conservative. I did do that. I did say that. Sorry, Spencer. What were you saying? <laughs> yeah, no, I I think it's I think it's quite valid. I mean, to to, to use like an atrocious phrase, it, it seems to me that what we are now talking around is like a teleology of digital engagement, and right. whether there's such a thing as digital engagement that fits usefully into a teleology of, of actual human embodied life, right? Um, and and I, I imagine that all of us would agree, right, that the teleology of your life, the actual what's the purpose of you being on, on earth, um, is, is not only more important than uh, digital engagement than social media, but like the only, like on a completely different sphere of importance, like matters, matters utterly. Um, and, and I guess, one thing that vexes me is whether there is a role, a supplemental role for things like social media and digital technology um, in that rooted human teleological life, right? I mean, it seems to me as if given the state of the world that we are in, which does have a really low degree of uh, local tradition, local engagement, or at least is very hostile to those sorts of things. Um, there's, for some people at least, there's a role on the way to forming an actual, you know, human virtuous family life. There's a role for for digital tech in that. Um, but all of that having been said, right? I mean, the 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 challenges of it, the temptations of it that you identify are completely real. I don't disagree with any of them. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess, uh, you know, and I'm curious to hear from you who is much more on- online than I am. I, sure. how, how much do you think that men are going to be able to hedge that? There, there is an element where I think online men, and this is not directed toward you, Spencer, definitely. You are no, very no, different I, toward this. Um, but <laughs> online men, I mean, men are, you know, egoists at the end of the day. And it's, a, and there, there's definitely really good things about that. I'm not saying men should not have egos. Mm. I think they should. Um, but Twitter and Facebook and all these other social media platforms has provided a definitely, definitely a avenue for men to, to be incredibly self-indulgent in that egoism, um, in ways that I don't mm. think anything else can because it's, it's fundamentally unreal. And the, the real ways that they can do that are more difficult and, and not as effective. Um, so it has that addictive quality for sure that I think is, you know, that if naturally men are going to be inclined toward and I'm in favor of the natural man. So what I'm asking is how much can we just allow, or I shouldn't say allow, there's nothing we can do about it, but how much should men allow themselves to indulge in it with, you know, with the idea of moderation? Like is moderation even something that you think naturally men can be inclined toward in this, in this instance? Mm. 
Wow. Yeah. Great question. Um, I think one you you mentioned in your piece the sort of media theorist Marshall McLuhan and and rightly right that that this that medium is he says the medium is the message right uh, there's there's just something about the form of engagement that shapes you even just no matter what you're saying whether you're saying you should lift weights whether you're saying you should start a family whether you're saying you should like riot and burn out American cities right there's there's we're all being shaped by this digital environment in which we live. Um, and I think one of the most pernicious or dangerous parts of the social medium, not necessarily digital technology full stop, but, but social media, um, is that it dissolves this, this barrier which exists in other media between, you know, somebody whose job it is to be like constructing and saying things, products for people to re- read and think about, um, and somebody who, who's to, you know, go away and take that and think about it and maybe incorporate it into his life, right? I mean, social media makes us all into both performers and consumers. Um, and, and that does seem to me to be a problem because one of the interesting things about like, you know, artists and public figures and people who go on podcasts, uh, all of this, right, is that it is an actual, it, it's sort of a, it, it, I mean, it's certainly been maligned throughout history as, a, as an effeminate thing to do. Um, but the nicer way of saying that is that it is a thing that is suited particularly to a certain kind of person um, who is in touch with certain virtues which are feminine, right, that, that, who are in touch with feminine virtues like introspection, right, and, and sort of uh, self-awareness, all these things. Um, and the temptations of that are well known. Egoism is one of them. Um, and so I, I definitely think that we could do a better job asking ourselves, like, why we're using these technologies at all. I mean, I don't think that somebody like Jordan Peterson should log off entirely. Like, I think that would be a bad thing for the world. Um, but I, I think it's possible that many of the people who listen to Jordan Peterson would would be happier and more fulfilled yeah. and they need to uh, log off and, and live natural lives, <laughs> logging off more. You see what I mean? Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I picked up, I mean, just from being on social media, like I picked up Spencer's show, Young Heretics. I started reading the classics because I listened to that show. It interested me mm-hmm. uh, in bigger and older uh, and more timeless ideas. And those things have value, but it does not have value unless you live it. Exactly. Um, yeah. And there's something about like you know, a Christian is supposed to go out there and minister to the world and actually tell people about Christ and about being saved. Um, but the, the social media example doesn't quite line up because like you don't just go to social media and tell people you are taking the poison. It's like going out to like preach the drug addicts, but you have to take the heroin in order to actually spend time with them. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, you are, you are constantly in like a slow state of dying on these platforms unless at some point I think you can view an off ramp. Um, I want to give you a final word, Emma, just to, just to kind of bring us to a close here. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, I think that to me, whenever I'm thinking about social media and obviously this doesn't just go for men. I think, I think social media in general is just a a bad thing for people to spend their time with because there's so many beautiful, very real things to spend your time with. Um, and yeah, I think that's what we need to be inclined toward is how, how are we spending our time? Why are we doing it? What are our motivations? That's not just a masculine thing. That's an everybody thing. And at the end of the day, if, if your motivation is to, you know, better, like better yourself, then I think we'll find that it's going to be almost entirely off, off the internet. Spencer Clavin, Emma Ayers, thank you both so much. This is a, a tough and important subject, and I appreciate your input on it. Yeah.
All right, and every week we do like to wrap things up with a bit of good news, both from the headlines or from our personal lives, so that we can end on a good note. Emma, you got anything happy, positive on your mind? Because I know it's all doom and gloom up there sometimes. Right. I took I took a break <laughs> from being really sad all the time, um, and I did I did a cool thing. I moved to Utah. Um, in the, in the past couple months, I've been, I've been living in Salt Lake City. Gorgeous place. I was living in, in DC prior to that. So yeah, they're basically the same. <laughs> uh, no, not really at all. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been an amazing time. Um, it is a traditionalist conservatives paradise, <laughs> some would say. Um, so yeah, loving Salt Lake and, uh, would encourage everybody to visit. Good for you. It's important to get out there into the world. Um, and good for you for going out west. I am, I am jealous and I hope to follow you here in the next couple yeah, you're of better, years. Steven. Um, I'll go ahead and go real quick. So one thing that I am happy about, particularly in light of today's conversation, is that according to the Institute for Family Studies, the proportion of children being raised in two-parent family homes, uh, married mother and father, is on the rise after a decline that began in the latter half of the 20th century. Um, kind of census figures are showing that the proportion of children living with two parents topped 70 percent in 2020 uh, and that is off a low of 67 percent uh, in 2005 so like these are really modest increases this they're like we're just talking about like three four percentage points but those are hundreds thousands uh, of kids who are growing up with their parents together in the home and that is good news um you know the decline from 1960 is so steep so steep. It is just like a, a hill you can ski down, uh, but it has flattened. So you have to wonder if in the long arc of time, if, if this will go back up. Um, and I do believe, I think that we might be headed in a positive direction for at least a couple of decades on that. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm not totally sure whether this is going to be controversial good news or not for this controversy uh, this spencer clavin never <laughs> <laughs> never never that's uh no I'm, I'm allergic to it as you know um no i i, I am very heartened by the admittedly sort of multivocal and multi-part uh, national effort to push back against what has come to be called critical race theory in in schools. And the reason I say it might be controversial is because, uh, you know, there are different views on exactly how you should get this poisonous stuff out of out of kids ears. Um, for those who don't know, critical race theory has become uh, a catch all term for an incredibly aggressive strain of, of thought that sort of identifies all things bad with whiteness and then teaches this to very young, impressionable children with predictably disastrous results. Um, the, the reason that I raise it as good news here is not because I want to like have an argument about exactly how to push back against this, but because it seems genuinely as if this is an issue in which the right is pursuing an effective strategy that involves engaging on the ground. It seems like when, when parents hear about this stuff, and you can see videos coming out of school boards and things like that, um, when they understand what's really being taught, as opposed to the current sort of like leftist obfuscation about it, um, they, they genuinely find it abhorrent. And that speaks well of the uh, American, beleaguered American soul to me. 
There's a great piece, The Battle for Loudoun County, written by my uh, friend and colleague, Nate Hawkman, um, on the American mind that sort of de- deals with this in one locality. Um, but I'm, I'm heartened by the fact that there is still, you can still go into school districts and, and sound the alarm about something like CRT and get a response. The pushback is real and it has been amazing to see. I think the, the grassroots note that you make is absolutely true. And we actually interviewed Nathaniel Hotchman here on Rightly uh, just a couple of days ago. So if you go into our YouTube channel, you can actually find Nate near the top of the feed talking about the battle of Loudoun County, mm-hmm. those parents against critical race theory. That is it for this week's episode of Right Now with Stephen Kent. I'm Stephen Kent. We will be back next week. New shows every Thursdays and videos throughout the week. We'll see you then. Thank <laughs> you.